2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Let's begin this morning just by reading the text 5 through 11. Actually, I want to start in verse 3, just because. Let's read. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer eternal punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, in uh, what makes a person worthy? This is the question that we're laid at here, or that gets laid at our feet in this text. What is it that makes a person worthy? In the Old Testament, you had these names, and, and I'm, I'm throwing back to the Old Testament for a reason. Just hang with me. So we have these names in the Old Testament that mean something. One of the ones that comes to mind that should always come to your mind when you start talking about names is Israel. Jacob, who turns into Israel. And if you follow Jacob's life story, Jacob begins a rat. He remains a rat. And at the end of his life, he's still kind of a rat. But he's got a new name and a new God by the end of the story. And the new God is the God, the one God. And he has taken that rat and made him something different. But it's not because Jacob does anything good. Over and over and over, you see Jacob doing bad things. He's a prime example for us. A man who is given a new name, given a new uh, disposition before God, only because God is merciful. And because God is gracious. And so what is it that makes Israel, Jacob, worthy to be a follower of God? What is it that made Abraham worthy of a follower of God? What took him from Abram to Abraham? What is it that made him the moniker, the patriarch of Israel? It was God's activity, God's 
doing God's work? What is it that makes David a great king? What is it that tunes his heart to the Lord? What is it? It's those years of walking with the Lord and hearing from Him. David still not perfect, right? Causes the downfall of all of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He is guilty of splitting the kingdom and destroying a great deal of the kingdom of Israel. What is it that makes Ezra and Nehemiah such strong, godly men worthy to be called leaders of Israel? What is it that makes people worthy? What is it that made Esther worthy to go before the king and to say what she says? What is it that makes them worthy? And in the New Testament, what is it that makes us worthy? What is it that makes us worthy? Right. Jesus Christ. I mean, if you didn't have the urge to answer that with Jesus, then yes. I mean, that's the right answer. The, the indwelling spirit Jesus Christ changing our souls, changing who we are, makes us worthy. That's what makes us worthy. But how are we proved worthy? How are we proved worthy? What, is it, what does it take that we are proved worthy? And that's what we see here in this text. In fact, we are told over and over in the New Testament to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4.12, walk properly or as is fitting before the Lord. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, walk in a manner of the worthy of the Lord or fitting to the Lord, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. So you're to walk in a manner worthy or fitting of the Lord, bearing fruit. That's how you walk. You bear fruit. That's what your walk bears fruit. And that's what makes, that's what identifies it as worthy. Ephesians chapter five, verse one, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. I love that one because you can see, you can see my kids and you know, they're my kids. Spend any amount of time with them and with me. If you know me, you look at my kids and you go, yep, that's your kid. Right, My wife, my mom will call my house. I will tell her something that my kids have done. And Stephanie's mom will say, I don't know how that, that like you never did that. And my mom will go, well, it's John's kid. Like, that's, and vice versa, right? My mom will call and I'll tell them something that one of my kids is doing. Tell her something that one of my kids is doing. And she'll go, you never did that. And Stephanie's mom will go, well, that's Stephanie's kid. Like, that's, that's their kid. You know it's their kid. Same way. You are a child of God. Once you have become a believer of Jesus Christ, you are now adopted a child of God. Be imitators, therefore, as be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And then in Ephesians 5, verse 8, walk as children of the light. You are no longer in darkness. You are no longer to walk in darkness. You are to live a lifestyle that is changed and transformed and walks in the light. Not in darkness. And there's all kinds of implications that we can jump into with that. But we're not teaching Ephesians 5 as much as I want to right now. We're not teaching Ephesians 5. We're going to 1 Thessalonians. But I wanted you to see all through Scripture, in particular in the letters, Paul urges us to walk in a manner that is fitting or worthy. So what proves out our, our lives as worthy? And I think we see it here in this text. Amidst the trial and persecutions of life. 
we become proved as worthy. It's what makes us proved and worthy. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, there's a difference between us and Old Testament people. And the difference is in the indwelling Holy Spirit that dwells within you and guides your soul. I would, we could speak much on this, but I would point you to Colossians chapter 3 to read verses, verses 1 through the end. Really, read the whole chapter. It's great. But the looking primarily at 9 and 10, you have a new nature that has been put in you that is being renewed after the image of its creator. Being renewed constantly. Being renewed is present, active, and continuous. It means that it's constantly happening. You could translate it as being renewed day by day after the image of its creator. You have a new nature which is being renewed day by day. It does not mean that your new nature does not sin. It means that your new nature is being renewed and refreshed every day by the indwelling Holy Spirit that walks within you. Romans chapter 8. You have a new nature, a new spirit that is within you. You have, you have a redeemed spirit of life and no longer under the law of sin and death. You are now under the spirit of grace. And you have the old has gone, the new has come. You have gotten a new nature in Christ Jesus. This is the evidence of that newness and that change in you. So when we talk about this passage, when it says this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God there in first and second Thessalonians chapter chapter one, verse five, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It's important for us to look. What is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Righteous judgment of God. Remember Righteousness and justice are the same Greek word. It's used in different tenses. Righteousness and justice are the same. So what is the evidence of the just judgment or the righteous judgment of God? And, and here it is. If you just look back in verse 3 and 4, you see your faith is growing. Your love for everyone is increasing. And you are steadfast in all persecutions and afflictions. You're steadfast and enduring all persecutions and afflictions. So the evidence that God is just in His judgment is that you are growing in faith, increasing in love, and steadfast in persecution and afflictions, and enduring afflictions. So this, is, this is the evidence of that. So how does that evidence this? Well, first, let's remember from last week, you can't get that without grace and peace. Without grace and peace from God, you don't get abundant faith, you don't get increasing love, and you don't get steadfastness. Those come by God. They're given by God through His grace. We talked about that extensively last week. We want to see that we get those things by grace. And Paul then says, when you stand up here under persecution and trial you evidence that god is just in his judgments you are proving god is just in his judgments we can get some help in first peter chapter one verse six and seven when it says in this you rejoice in your persecutions you rejoice that's wild right first peter was written to a bunch of christians who were being persecuted legitimate thrown to lions type persecution kicking down the door drug out of their house kind of persecution People who were not permitted to do commerce with people because they were simply Christian. People who were enslaved, beaten, thrown to the lions, killed because they were Christians. 
That's who Peter's writing to. Peter's writing to them. And so he writes this phrase. In this you rejoice. In this suffering you rejoice. In this idea right here that follows. Though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes. Though tested by fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says we rejoice in our sufferings for this time. We rejoice in these things because it shows the tested genuineness of our faith. You know one thing that never happens in the persecuted church? One question that almost never gets asked? I don't know if I'm really saved. That almost never gets asked in the persecuted church. When people face persecution, they know if they believe or not. They know if they believe or not. How do they know? Because they're facing persecution and they believe and they're faithful. People who ask, I don't know if I'm really a believer. I don't know if I really grasp this. They are people who do not struggle or suffer often. Often they are people who are comfortable and it's a valid question. Don't get me wrong. I'm not scolding the person for asking that. That's an important and valid question. And the answer, by the way, is read First John all the way through and see, am I following Jesus or am I following the world? That's the answer. That's the assurance right there. I write this to you so that you would know that you believe. That's why John wrote First John. So that you would know that you believe. If you question your salvation, if you question your faith, if you struggle to believe that you are a believer, go read First John. And if you come to the end of it going, I don't know if I believe, repent and believe. Because the offer is there of salvation in Jesus Christ. Repent and trust Him now. So, we see here though, Peter says that in our trials, we have a tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire. So we have a faith that is tested by fire, it's purified, and we see it as genuine. So when we face persecution, when we face difficulties and struggles, when we face these things, we find out what we're made of. We find out our metal. We find out who we are. That's what we're getting at here when he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy or you may be thought of as worthy. You may be considered worthy. Why? Why is this the evidence? Here, this is the answer. Why is this the evidence? That you may be considered worthy. Worthy is the word for fitting or fit for. It doesn't mean that you somehow earn it. It doesn't mean that you you victory. It's not the same as considered the champion. Like that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you may be considered worthy. It is that somebody looks at you and says, "I know this to be true because I can see it in them." Not because they've earned it, but because I can see it in them. The same word is used in Matthew 3 verse 8 where it says, "Bear fruit fitting of repentance." Bear fruit that would result from repentance. So your repentance is what is making you fitting, is what makes fitting there. You bear fruit because you've repented, and it's fitting that you would then bear fruit. Let me try this again. You say, 
the idea here is that you are doing something that is fitting a child of God. You are behaving in a way that is fitting or expected from one who is redeemed or rescued by God. And thereby you are proving the just judgment of God. You are proving the just judgment of God. So how does this, how how do you show evidence here? First, it's through suffering that we are proving fit for the kingdom of God. There are three things here that we can see um, that I, I think you could argue are showing you worthy of the kingdom of God. One is through suffering you are proving fit for the kingdom of God. We already read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, what he says that the tested genuineness of your faith is tested by fire and this persecutions that, that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19, he, he argues, do not be surprised, brothers, that the fire has come upon us and it comes upon the house of God first. Judgment has come and it is landing on us. It lands on the people of God first. Why? So that it would prove that you have faith. Difficulties come in life to prove that you have faith. To prove your mettle. To show who you are. You ever want to find out who somebody really is? There's two ways to do it. One is to scare them. I mean scare them. They will lose it and they will lose all composure if they're genuinely scared. You will find out who a person is at their core when they are afraid. The second way is to put them through an intense and difficult situation. Put them through an intense and difficult situation. Now, I don't have to elaborate on that. All of you have either been scared or in intense and difficult situations in the past. So just think back on that. How did you respond? I can tell you when I was, when it was early on in my walk with the Lord, I responded very differently than I do now, than I would now. And that's not because I look back on it and can remember the same thing. No, when you're put into a seriously difficult circumstance... You tend to forget your history. Everybody tends to forget their history. If they're put into a very difficult circumstance, the only people who don't are people who have written down somewhere, remember your history. And in the middle of their difficult circumstance, they open it and go, I remember my history. They, The person who gets into an intensely difficult situation, a conflict with somebody, a difficulty with somebody, you know, where you're, you get cotton mouth, you have those where... You know stuff's going wrong. You know you're about to walk into a place that's going to be really hard. You get cotton mouth. You start drying up. You get nervous. You don't know why you're nervous. Your kid comes over and is like, hey, daddy, can we do this? And you're like, no. And it's weird. And your kid runs away. And it's awkward. And you are difficult. You're walking into a difficult situation. That's when you start to see who you really are. That's when you start to see who you really are. And praise the Lord that I am not who I used to be. And while I'm not quite where I want to be, I'm not who I used to be. I have changed. And I can look back over my life and I can see with confidence that what the Lord has brought me through has proven that He has changed my heart and changed my soul and has vindicated His justice and His judgment because He saw fit to rescue me, taking my sin and putting it on Jesus Christ. And Jesus dying on the cross taking my place as a substitutionary atonement, dying on the cross that, that I would lose all my sin in that moment. All my sin would be 
killed and buried with Him. And then He would be raised to new life and I would be raised to new life with Him. He would conquer sin and death. And that is justice. Mercy given to you is justice. Because when you trust in Jesus, you no longer deserve death and sin and hell. I mean, yes, you deserve it. Don't get me wrong. You, 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 are, you are guilty. But you have been redeemed and rescued. And in God's economy, that judgment has been paid for in Jesus. And you are free from that judgment. And now mercy is actually just. It's an act of just justice that you are no longer held to pay for that thing with which you are no longer counted guilty. So suffering tests our faithfulness or our or our genuineness because it shows his mercy to us. It shows his mercy is changed work in our hearts. Second, suffering leads to sanctification. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we're told to strive for peace and for holiness without which no one sees God. You do not see God without holiness. Let's be clear. You have to, you have to be holy before God in order to see Him. You are made holy in Jesus Christ. You are sanctified in Jesus Christ by the working of His Spirit in your heart. And you are growing in holiness and affection to Him so that you can see God. And you can see God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. We read this earlier. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Here he says, we pray for you that you that He would make you worthy or fit for the calling. So he, we know that suffering leads to sanctification. As we suffer and struggle, He makes us fit. He makes us sanctified. He sanctifies us, making us more holy. And we become more and more like Jesus. And this is the rescue of our souls here, that we would be sanctified before the Lord. So first, suffering brings uh, proving that we are in the kingdom of God. Second, suffering brings sanctification. Third, suffering proves out a perspective shift. A perspective shift. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Paul says of afflictions, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond compare. Suffering brings a perspective change. You change from an earthly, worldly perspective to an eternal one through suffering. When suffering falls upon us, when difficulty falls upon us, we change our perspective from this world to the next, to eternity. These are some of the things that will mark, if you read some of the martyrs and some of the people who are struggling even now, if you read them, you will see this marking in them. That suffering has brought a power in the kingdom of God, an assurance of their faith in justice of God. Suffering has brought a sanctification and a holiness and a desire for holy things in them. And suffering has brought in them a perspective shift to eternity, not to this world. Some great books for you to consider are Nick Ripkin's book, 
Um, no, the names of the insanity of God. Good, I put it on the back table. The insanity of God back there. Uh, you can see this this manifest in those stories. Bruchko is another great book to read on that indicates these things. Also, Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you don't have a copy of that, please let me know. We will get you one uh, just to be encouraged by the martyrs and the saints. This is beautiful. You'd never bear up under persecution if God was unjust. Let's be clear. You would never bear up under persecution if God was unjust. If God was unjust, you would still, you would still fall under every persecution, under every difficulty. But because God is just, because He has redeemed you, because He has put the penalty of sin on Jesus and given you a clean heart and given you a clean soul, because He has done that, you are able to bear up under persecution. You are able to live a life fit for the kingdom of God. You are able to be called worthy because Jesus takes the punishment. God gives you mercy. As justice. And what are you worthy for? You're worthy of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is now at hand. Remember what Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says it three times in the Gospel of Matthew. He says it over and over in the Gospel of Luke and Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Those disciples who sit under Jesus are told, You are given the secrets to the kingdom of God now. Everybody else I'm going to talk to in parables. But to you I'm going to give the secrets of the kingdom of God. Think about that for a minute. This is the idea that when you are worthy of the kingdom of God, when you are placed in the kingdom of God, and you know that you're placed in the kingdom of God, that means that the things that Jesus said make sense to you. Now consider the implications of that. They make sense to you. Understand that they don't make sense to the world. In that passage in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calls his disciples together and they say, why do you speak in parables? He says... To you that is given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to the others, I will be, they will be ever hearing and never perceiving, ever seeing and never understanding. They are not going to understand apart from the Holy Spirit moving in their hearts to change them. This is why we take it so seriously when we pray those impossible prayers. And when we pray for our brothers and sisters, literal brothers and sisters, who do not know Jesus... When we pray for our neighbors who do not know Jesus, we pray, Lord, move. Lord, change them. Lord, move in their heart. Use your spirit and your word to change them. And yes, we evangelize. We share the gospel. We speak about the Bible. But we pray with the power of the Holy Spirit that he would move in the hearts of people. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Give the word out and we trust the Spirit of God moving in the heart of man to transform him to be able to hear. The kingdom of God is now. You are given the secrets of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in the midst of us. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, he's talking about how everybody's going to be asking, where's the kingdom of God? And Jesus goes, in the middle of you. It's in you. It's in us. The kingdom of God is manifest in the people of God living out the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God operates in spiritual power in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19 through 20, that the kingdom of God is in power, not in merely talking. He, he challenges the guys that he's going to meet. And he says, I hope when I come, I will test these men because the kingdom of God doesn't work by, by, word, by mere words, but by power. This 
kingdom of God is in power. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of, and get this, this is the kingdom of God. It's both here and and coming. It's The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking or, or activities, but rather of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. The kingdom of God is exemplified by righteousness and peace and joy. Christians are the happiest people on the earth. They are. Persecuted Christians whose faith have been, has been proven are way happier. They are happier than anyone else on the planet. Richard Vernbrand was called one of the happiest men on the earth. Anybody who ever met him said he was incredibly happy. That man was tortured for 13 years in communist Romania, in prison daily. And yet he and his wife are considered the happiest people on the earth. The kingdom of God is in righteousness and in peace and in joy in the spirit. Righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. Who can take this from you? No one can. No one can take this from you. No one can take this from you. Precisely because you didn't give it to yourself. And you don't hold it. Jesus holds it. And Jesus gave it to you. John 6. All who come to me, I will, I will not cast out. I, I hold all that the Father gives me. John 10. I will lose none of the sheep which the Father has given me. I, they are mine. You don't lose something that was given and that is secured by Jesus. In 1 Peter, we are reminded that there is an inheritance stored up for us that is kept and guarded for you in heaven. Kept and guarded for you in heaven. There's no bank better than that, by the way. You have the best place. You, this is the kingdom of God. You're worthy of the kingdom of God and you suffer for this kingdom you deal through persecution and affliction for this kingdom now what's the purpose that god has for this that you may be considered worthy is first one second one verse six since indeed god considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us so here you've got Two things. God repays those who afflict the afflicted. And then he gives release to the afflicted. Those are two things that happen. God gives uh, justice to the afflictor. He repays the afflictor and he grants relief to the afflicted. Justice and relief come from the same source. Justice and relief come from the same source. I would argue they are consummated or completed by the same source and the same action. The judgment of God brings justice or repayment to the afflictor and it brings relief to the afflicted. The same action brings both things. The judgment of God brings both. Justice and release... Relief come from the same source. I would cite Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25 for that. That you are given the grace of God in the judgment of God. You're given the grace of God in the judgment of God. So when, where, and how does this come? Does this judgment come? He tells us here 
in verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Pause there. When is this revealed? Well, it's, it happens. The judgment comes completely when Jesus is revealed. There's two ways to take this phrase, when Jesus is revealed. One is metaphorically. Jesus is revealed in our hearts and he shows them we see him and we did. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here because he's going to go on to talk about from heaven, flaming fire, angels. He's talking about in judgment. I don't think he's talking about metaphor here. You can take it metaphorically and a lot of people do. A lot of people like to, to say, well, this is metaphoric, and, and I understand why. And I, and I just want to address that thought process. I understand that we have been on the earth since Jesus 2,000 years, give or take. We've been on the earth since Jesus 2,000 years. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, everyone thought it was going to be immediate, his return. Everyone thought he was going to come back immediately. And everybody held to it. So much so that the Montanists in 300 or 200 went up on hills and stood there waiting for the Lord to return. Every, that's how their worship services went. They went up on a hill and they waited. And somebody would talk and they might sing a song and they had worship. Well, I guess not today. And then they'd go down. And that was their worship service. It was a crazy amount of faith and obedience to an understanding of Scripture and an understanding of what they had been taught, that Jesus was coming back and it was going to be imminent. It was going to be right away. It is, by the way, going to be imminent, just so you're aware. Every moment you are closer. That's just logic. That doesn't even have to, I don't have to validate that with anything because I'm a second older than I was a second ago. Now I'm two seconds older. Now I'm three seconds older. You understand? Like this, we get closer every moment to him coming back. And he says he's coming back, so he's going to come back. Well, this is... This is, in, in the scope of time, as we wait and as we long for Jesus' return, we are waiting for him. I understand why people would go, well, maybe this is figurative. Maybe this is a spiritual reality. Maybe we need to divide ourselves from the, from the physical and think of ourselves as spiritual beings and the physical as this momentary affliction is where we physically are. It's very, very New Agey, very Buddhist to do that, very Eastern religion to do that just so you're aware we don't we don't separate body spirit we don't we don't do that we're not gnostics we don't believe that the body is bad and the spirit is good and you have to figure out how to divinely separate yourself from the two we're christian we believe that god rules the body and the spirit and that both are important and that you have a body spirit and soul that are supposed to be uh, mind mind body spirit that sorry english uh, that you move towards understanding christ in all things and that's why we exercise our bodies to to stay healthy and holy and that's why there is some holiness in our work with our hands that's why paul says labor with your hands this is this is because your body matters the earth matters the soul matters the mind matters it all matters so i think that this passage here is speaking literally that there will come a day when Jesus will return, as he has promised in Acts chapter 1, where he said, I'm going to come back. He's coming back the same way he left. Same way he left. Do you remember how he left? 
They were out in a field and standing there and he ascends into heaven. And evidently, it was a long time that they're standing there watching him ascend into heaven. Evidently, there was a long time there. You know it's long because the angels get frustrated with the people who are standing there still watching and go, would you get to work already? That's the John Elkins paraphrase. Would you get to work? Like, he's coming back the same way he left. Why are you still standing here? Move. Go. Right? The angels are organizing things. They move things. They get people moving where they're supposed to be. Go. Move. Go. Go get to work. He's coming back in the same way. It's understandable that in light of that, we would, we would struggle to believe that he's coming back in the same way since it's been 2,000 years. It's understandable. I just want to relate that. It's understandable that there are theologians who are godly, good men that would go, this is talking figuratively about Jesus being revealed in our hearts. And for me, it's happened. I mean, after all, the kingdom of God is here and now. I understand. I get it. I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. There are other places where it talks about Jesus having come and revealed himself in your heart and changed your heart and changed who you are. This passage is specifically talking about the judgment day when Jesus is going to return. Indeed, that's a theme of this book. It's a theme of 1 Thessalonians. He says, encourage one another with these words that he is coming back. He's coming back. This is a physical, literal thing. Jesus says, or Paul says here, he is coming. He's going to grant. He's going to afflict the afflictors. He's going to grant relief to those who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His angels in His power, so He's coming from heaven. Let's just think about that for a minute. The words, the phrase "from heaven" is almost never used in Scripture to refer to something figurative. It's used maybe two, three times to refer to something figurative, or that you could interpret it as a figurative thing. But he is speaking literally of from heaven. When Jesus is baptized, then the dove descends from heaven. Same phrase. When God speaks to the people and says in, uh, in uh, John chapter twelve, verse twenty-eight, when God speaks from the heaven and everybody hears him, it's from heavens that he speaks. In Acts chapter one, Jesus descends into heaven and he will come from heaven. The same way in Romans chapter. Chapter 1, verse 18. God brings wrath on the people of the earth from heaven. Judgment comes from above to below. This is a picture of a literal place where things come from, where Jesus comes from. When Jesus talks to the people, he says he has come down from heaven. He's the bread of life that has come down from heaven. God came to earth from heaven in Jesus. Jesus, God, man, 100% God, 100% man, comes to earth from heaven. He is from heaven. So first, this is a picture. He is coming from heaven. He's going to come from heaven. Second, the source of judgment is from heaven. Light comes and exposes the hearts and motives of men in first Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, and Psalm 50, verse 4, judgment is summoned by God, by people, who, by the people of God, and by God, from heaven. So from heaven it comes. And then in, nine, in Psalm chapter 96, verse 13, He comes from the heavens to judge the earth. Judgment is in heaven. Judgment, the throne, the authority, 
Judgment and holiness are in heaven and they come from heaven to earth. The judgment seat is in heaven. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. And the only only God who is in heaven knows the hour or moment of just of judgment of when he is returning. When Jesus is asked, when is he coming back? When is the judgment going to happen? When is it all going to be over? Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, that is only for the father to know. That is only for the father to know in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. God knows judgment and he is in heaven. He is in heaven. Judgment comes from heaven. So we see judgment is, uh, is revealed from heaven in Jesus' return. And it comes from heaven. The judgment, the authority, and the power comes from heaven. And then we have four hows. How does judgment come? What does it look like when judgment comes? First, with he comes, he's revealed, and he comes with angels of his power. Or mighty angels. Um, it's a, it's, there's an interesting Greek thing going on here where it's, these angels are deriving their power or might from Jesus in the construct of the sentence. So we, we really ought to render it something like the angels of his power or angels under his authority or angels who bear his power. Because it's important to understand that though angels are very powerful, they derive any power that they have from the sustaining work of Jesus Christ the same way everybody else does. You breathe because he is kind and merciful. Any strength or power you have is because he is kind and merciful and allows you to breathe. Same thing with the angels. That's how vast and powerful and big God is. The stars stay where they are because God put them there and said, stay. He hangs them on nothing. They are out there because he did it. They remain because he did it. He is the power from heaven. So he brings angels with him in power in scripture angels are typically organizers i want you to think about the book of ezekiel in ezekiel chapter 9 the angels are given an assignment where they have to go mark all the true believers they're told they have to go mark all the true believers put a mark on them and then we'll divide them up and the true believers will be protected from the wrath of god that is going to come in the exile and then you've got later on in the book of ezekiel when there's this tape measuring angel i don't know if you've ever read through ezekiel it's a weird and crazy book but a tape measuring angel who's walking through the temple and he's like it's this tall and this tall and he's telling uh he's telling ezekiel write all this stuff down and ezekiel's like walking behind him with a piece of paper writing these things down he's literally measuring pillars and telling him to write these things down, distances to altars, and there's this precision that is done in the temple of God, and this angel is told to measure. So these, these angels are organizational most of the time. They gather people, they, they put people over here, and they put other people over here. They, they mark people for the kingdom. They, they mark those who God tells them to mark. Matthew, they gather the wheat and the weeds, and they often divide true from false the angels of the Lord are often dividing the true from the false. Uh, so these angels come in his power and they are coming in his power. And that's important that you understand the power that comes in judgment that will rescue you is Jesus. Is Jesus's power. It is the power of him. And that power that comes in judgment to grant relief from affliction that power that gives relief and the ability to overcome affliction. 
what the idea of relief is, the ability to overcome, to rest through or to press, press through the affliction, comes from Jesus. It is the power of Jesus. And get this, he put his spirit in you. If you believe in him, he put his spirit in you and you are able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You are able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Second, they come in flaming fire. Isaiah 66, verse 15 through 16. God brings fire or judgment of judgment. God brings fire of judgment. Now, um, figurative or literal? Is this literal fire or figurative fire? Is this talking about circumstances or is this talking about literal? There's going to be fire from the heavens. Best when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature to answer with yes. When you're dealing with apocalyptic literature, the best is to answer with yes. Do not lose the point. We can lose the point. We can lose the point, which is judgment is coming and it's going to burn. We can lose the point. And yes is the best answer sometimes. Best answer here is yes. Purification is called fire in 1 Peter. And he's talking about persecution. Clearly, fire is figurative. It's also literal because some of them were being burned at the stake. So it's not not just figurative. The best way to answer this question is, yes, there's going to be fire coming from heavens, from the heavens, and that fire is judgment, and that judgment is going to land on us, and it's going to land on the earth, and he's going to purify the earth by fire. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, verse 11, and verse 12, all things get purged by fire. Yes, Literal, figurative. Yes, sure. Literal, figurative. Don't lose the point. The point is that judgment is coming. You do not have time to wait. You do not have time to wait. Repent now. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Him for salvation. We do not have time to wait. We have the great joy. But judgment is coming. And if you're persecuted and in a position of difficulty, if your life is so extremely hard at the moment, which some of us it is, you may not be persecuted, but you may just have difficulties. If your life is so hard at the moment, judgment is coming. Affliction, relief from affliction is coming and it comes in Jesus Christ. Hold fast to your faith. Hold fast to your faith as you will prove the mercy and goodness of God has changed your soul. You will prove the mercy and goodness of God has changed your soul. When reading apocalyptic literature, we need to be careful not to reduce it to mere symbolism. And we also need to be careful not to overstretch it to mere literalism. There is a truth in the text of what God is going to do. And he is going to do it. Indeed, he has done it. And he is going to fulfill it. He keeps his promises. And that's what we are to cling to. We must say yes and seek the application Indeed, a theology that does not change your life might be heresy. A theology that does not change your life might be heresy. We have a lot of theologies floating out in the world today that don't change your life. They might be right. They also might be heresy. Be careful. Theology that does not change things, does not alter the way that you live, might be heretical. It might be allowing you to stay the way you are when God wants you to change so be careful. Be careful. Do not think that you will not fall. But instead, trust the Lord and seek Him and press hard into Him. 
So third, so first it comes with angels and powers. Third comes in flaming fire, this term used for judgment. Third, uh, second it comes in flaming fire. Third, it comes on those who don't know and do not obey. Those who do not know and do not obey. Now, we can divide those into two groups if you want to. I think grammatically it works best if you recognize that those are the same thing. Primarily because the word don't know is not the word gnosko, as in like they've heard and they've, they've rejected it just mentally, or they're ignorant, but rather they don't know from the heart. They don't know from their core. It's the word oida. So it's this, this word of they don't have an intimate knowledge of, and that's consistent with Romans chapters 1 through 3. Though they know God, though they gnosko God, they do not obey Him. They know Him, but they don't obey Him because obedience comes from an intimate, personal knowledge. We see this in Romans chapter 1 through 3. We see it also again in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, that they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed what they have heard from us? And then we get that great, powerful phrase, but faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So we see there are those who don't know at their core. This is a willful not knowing. This is not simply intellectual. It's a willful not knowing. And those people who do not know do not obey. Why? Because they don't know. Because they are not personally connected to Jesus. They have not been transformed. They do not know. So these are the same people. So judgment comes with the angels in his power, flaming fire, and it comes on those who don't know and do not obey. Obedience is almost always connected with knowing God. Obedience is almost always connected to knowing God. If you say somebody knows God, then it's understood that they will obey. If you know God, you obey. Then fourth, it is away from the presence of the Lord. This judgment here, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes. I'm sorry, and the glory of His might. So it says here that they are away from the presence of the Lord. We could accept that or see that uh, with the idea that Jesus was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, or just a very literal reading, why have you turned your back against me? Why have you turned away from me? And yes, he's quoting a psalm that they would all know, and there's a great deal to understand there. But he is also very plainly saying, God has turned his back on me. And this is the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. So what does that feel like? It feels like abandonment from the sustaining power of God. Away from the presence of the Lord. And I point that out because Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says that you are spared from the wrath of God. You are spared from the wrath of God. So there's something going on here. An eternal punishment is being eternally subject to the wrath of God. So there's some wrath present. And is that not a character trait of God? It is a character trait of of God. So what does it mean when he says away from the presence of God? What, he, what I think he's getting at is what Jesus describes. All of a sudden, the sustaining power of God, that common grace that everybody has, is removed. And all that's left is wrath and judgment. This is terrifying. For eternity, wrath and judgment. 
And I say it's eternal because the word destruction cannot possibly be interpreted to mean annihilation. It can't possibly be read that way. The Greek word is ruin. Ruination. Like constant ruining. The word is used elsewhere to describe deep and painful, constant ruin. A rich man who trusts in his riches will lose them all, will suffer destruction and loss of those things because they will be completely ruined. It does not mean that he is annihilated. It means that he is ruined. He is ruined. The same thing is used here that they are struggling with being ruined for eternity. So this is the judgment of the Lord. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, though this is reason to repent that these will suffer punishment. Those who do not know, do not trust, do not believe in Jesus and do not obey His gospel, they will suffer eternal destruction away from the presence of the glory of His might. They will not see the revelation of Jesus and God's glory of all that He is. His mercy and His love and His tenderness and His presence. Rather, they will suffer wrath for eternity. Wrath for eternity. And that wrath is perfectly just as it is evidenced by their rejection of Him. Willful, plain rejection. God cannot be blamed for this in any measure. For the invisible qualities of God have been made known through nature. God has shouted who He is from the mountaintops, from the foundations of the earth. He has yelled who He is. And we have rejected Him. It has nothing to do with Him. Rejection is something we do all on our own. We don't need help sinning. We do that all by ourselves and we're pretty good at it. What we need help with is not sinning, trusting in the Lord, the Spirit moving in us. We need that help and that's why we pray and seek His face to be more like Him. Now, what about the saints? So we see that's judgment coming and at the same time there's relief. Look at verse 10. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints... And to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So first, the saints are glorified fully with Jesus. When he comes, this judgment of Jesus coming, being revealed from heaven to earth. When he comes, we get glorified in him and him in us. We get glorified. Glorified means to be made completely known. To be completely revealed. Right? This is the glory means the accurate representation of reality. So we see all of who Jesus is, and in him we find all of who we are. Our identity is made completely secure. So beautiful is this picture that in Revelation it gives you a picture of a stone that is handed to the one who overcomes, and on that stone there's a name that is known by him and God alone. And you'll see that name and you'll go, That's who I am. I knew that's who I was. The whole time, the whole time, I knew that's who I was. You had made me somebody, and I knew that I was somebody, and I only see that because I see you, because I know you. You want to know who you are? You have identity issues? You want to know who who you're supposed to be in life? You want to know where you're supposed to go? Get as close to you can as Jesus. Get as close to you can to Jesus, and grow with Him, and you will find who you are. Is it any wonder that our world can't even determine who they are? Of course not. They don't know Jesus. 
So our goal is to introduce them to him that they might know who they are and see the glory and majesty of Jesus and be saved. So first, we get glorified in him and with him and, and he is, we, are, we are made uh, known completely and he is made known in us. And second, we, we marvel at him. He's to be marveled at. So it's going to be awesome. Just think about the day when he returns, how incredible that's going to be. I don't know where you'll be. But I I have no idea where we'll be. Maybe you'll be walking on a hillside with a friend and you'll look up and see it. Or maybe you'll be uh, doing some labor. Maybe you'll be like I will probably be stuck in an office. Not stuck. Sitting in an office by choice, looking at some book, scribbling or drawing some picture of something, drawing a cartoon or an owl or something. And and your kid will go, wow, and you'll turn around and you'll marvel at it. That's the image that that Paul is getting at here. He's going to come back and it's going to be incredible. And people are just going to stand there and go, wow, it's going to be amazing. If you don't believe it's going to be amazing, go read the book. Read Revelation. Read Daniel. You'll see how incredible it's described. Read these things and take delight in them. Encourage one another with these words that he is coming back. And when he comes back, we will marvel at him. We will marvel among those who have believed. And then third, we will be among those who have believed. Don't let that jump over. Don't just passively run right past that. All your afflictions and turmoils and struggles and all those weird meetings that are so difficult to handle and all that anxiety that that builds up in you will have proven out to prove that you are his. And when he returns, you will see him for who he is and you will be proven as those who believe because you believed the testimony that was given to you. You are included in this. This is not some distant, ethereal thing that you get to read about and think about and then just kind of pass over. This is something that you are a part of. That you are a part of. When He is revealed, so are you. When He is revealed in completeness, life begins. Remember Revelation 21, right? When it talks about the end and it says, Behold, I am making all things new. And then it says, we translate it, it is finished. Awful translation it should say it is born it is born genomai it is born it is just getting started the plan of god has come to fruition and he has gathered his saints at the end of the book and it is just getting started it is born your new life has happens in complete fullness at the return of jesus and there's victory in life Oh, that we would do this, that we would that we would grab hold of this. So what's our application for this? So we see that the evidence of the righteous judgment of God is proved out through us in these ways. And that judgment looks this way and that the second coming will be this way. Then what's our response to this end? We pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So first. We pray for you that God would make you fit. We pray for one another. At Sovereign Grace, we take prayer for one another very seriously. I literally have three notebooks for you that get opened every day and looked at for you that talk about your impossible prayers, 
that talk about the things I see in you that are so beautiful and wonderful and that talk about the random prayers that you have given me. We take prayer very seriously. Pray for one another. Pray, and what do you pray for one another? That you would be proven fit. I want people to see you and to see me and go, those are fit believers. Those are, those are believers and no one doubts it. No one doubts it. No one looks at people here and goes, I, I want it so that no one can look at you and go, well, I don't know if he really believes. No, they look at you. I want them to look at you and go, yeah, they're crazy. Those guys are believers. They believe what they say. They live what they do. That's what I want us to be. That's who we strive to be. We pray for one another that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord. Second, we pray that God would fulfill every good work. That he would fulfill every good work. That he who has started the work in you will be faithful and just to complete it. But more than that, that he would transform our hearts to such an extent that he would work through our hands. And we would see good work being done on this earth. Righteous work. Just work. Justice work on this earth would be accomplished by us. By the believers who trust in Jesus Christ and are going to see him come at his completion. So we pray for that now. We pray for that now. And third, we pray that he would be make us more like Jesus, that we would that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of Jesus our Lord may be glorified in you and you in him. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. That both directions. That people would see Jesus in you and that you would see more of who you are in him. That you would become more and more the individual God created you to be with all your unique proclivities and, and talents and, and warts and bumps and everything that he calls beautiful because he made them. All those things that are inherently you would become more and more beautiful and refined and more and more like Jesus as you get closer to him. And you, the only religion in the world that does this, you become more and more like him. You become more and more unique in yourself. You are glorified in him as he is glorified in you. You are made real in him as he is made real in you. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you in him, according to the grace of our God, and the Lord Jesus. And Paul bookends this. This is beautiful, beautiful Hebrew poetry. Verse 2. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we follow all the way down and in verse 12. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the grace that you are given in Jesus Christ, you endure, you are steadfast in the faith, you abound in love, you abound in faithfulness. This is due to the grace of God that we would be more and more like Jesus. So to this end, we pray. To this end, we pray that we would be more and more like Christ and called worthy of knowing him. Let's pray and enter into a time of communion together.